Some of us make our living playing trumpet, while others do more talking than actual playing. No matter our background or ability, we're all fascinated with this piece of plumbing that has earned its place in the pantheon of musical legend, for better or for worse. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm glad you're here. So let's get on with the show. I'm on the line with Phil Snedeker, wonderful trumpet player. He's a uh, Went to the Eastman School of Music, and if you're not a musician, tuning in, it's one of the top music schools in the United States. He's the author of Making Rain and Other Adventures on the Trumpet. First of all, I heard about it on social media. It was just getting rave reviews. It's very personal, or personable, I should say. The best way to write is uh, write as though you're just speaking to a friend of yours over coffee, and that's just the way it's written. Very easy read, and... Uh, it, it's manageable with the length and really, really fine wisdom and insights shared. So glad to have you, man. Yeah, I, I, th- this has been kind of a a project that came about. It, 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 you know, everybody's got a novel or a book in their head, right? And so I had this floating around my head, and one day I just decided to to start it, and then it got finished really fast, like in a couple of weeks. Like I just I dictated it to my phone. I have this notes. I, I I have this notes app in my phone that dictates what I say, and I just sat there and talked to my phone for a couple of weeks and uh, put it into files, and then uh, and of course cleaned it up because you know it, 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 the dictation software isn't perfect, but you know I edited it through that, and then you know my wife did some editing, and my uh, you know other friends I I sent it out some test things, and then I just decided you know rather than sit on this, I'm going to get it out there. And then I contacted my good friend, uh, Jeff Kernow, who's assistant principal trumpet in the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, who's a fine cartoonist. And he came up with this, this amazing cover that really turned out so well. Mm, yeah, uh, it's, and that's it's wonderful. It, it, it's, it's great because it takes all the elements of the book and kind of synopsizes them and has the rainbow and everything. And that's me and my tux and my raincoat and my trumpet and my umbrella and the notes coming down. And then it, the rainbow, I don't know if you can see that, but that's... That's part of the book too. The last chapter is called um, "Playing, Teaching, and Watching Rainbows," and uh, he kind of he, he he did that like in a day and a half. Like in a day and a half, he had read the whole book, sketched out the thing, sent me basically what you see there. There were very few changes we had to make to it, and and he just he kind of got it right away. And so I was telling you earlier, I made it fairly short because I don't think the trumpet players have a lot of time or uh, sometimes energy to read big, long, lengthy books, and it just kind of says what I want to say, gets out, and take it or leave it. Yeah, and we don't. People these days don't have time to read War and Peace, but we can take um, a chapter that's, I don't know, a thousand, fifteen hundred words, maybe two thousand words that takes you about ten minutes to read. And musicians have a break here and there. Whip out your phone, read a read a chapter of of a, a great book like this. Um, but you were talking about the cartoon on the cover, and it just perfectly uh, uh, illustrates the essence of the book, which is high energy, but but not crazy, crazy puppy energy. It's really really well done, and and it, and again, it just speaks from your heart. Now, I I, I guess I just want to start with asking, what is, in your words, what is a rainmaker specifically pertaining to music? And you yourself. It's somebody that makes something 
that didn't exist before. So if you're in a town and, um, you know, there's no, I don't know, broke ensemble. There's no, in my case, there was no brass ensemble. If there's no X and, and you see that and you kind of do that and you want to do that, then you, you see a need and you fill it. And that's the mark of any successful corporation, right? You see a, a need for something that people need and then you fill that need. And so in the music world that, you know, no, I, I, so you could, you could argue that nobody needs music, but that everybody needs music, right? So people need certain entertainment, certain, uh, food for the soul. And, and if you do that and you want to do that, go out there and do it. Uh, it's, it's all about taking your, singing your song and getting it out there and then making a, a certain portion or all of your living from it. And that's really the, the magic of being a great, a great, entrepreneurial position musician is is figuring out how to get paid doing what you love and that's what this book is about well i mean that's that's the uh mark of any entrepreneur musician or not is uh when your work doesn't feel like work of course it's sometimes it's a very hard work but when it's work done towards something that you really believe in and that you're really passionate about and you're not working for quote the man then it it's just has its own rewards. And you talked a lot about your group, the Washington Symphonic Brass, which I had heard of just speaking to you and hearing about it here and there, but I didn't really investigate it, listen to any of the recordings in detail until I read the book. And I was really fascinated with the founding origins of it and some of the success stories that you had from the very beginning. And you talked about there there wasn't a brass group in Washington, D.C. Well, there were, but they were more like ad hoc. Just get, a, get a couple of people together for Easter and Christmas and then just go disband and do your own thing. But you created something that was had a lot more longevity. And I was wondering if you could just share a bit more, like expound a bit more on the Washington Symphonic Brass and some of the challenges, some of the successes that you had in the early days. Yeah. So whatever you do, you've got to brand it right. Right. So uh, in, in, in my case, I had this I, I landed in this town that was uh, a huge brass town. Right. You had all the military bands, the premier military bands you had. Uh, and then you had the National Symphony and the Kennedy Center Opera House Orchestra and the Baltimore Symphony all in close proximity. And then you had the, you know, second tier uh, groups around, which are all very good. Uh, Annapolis Symphony and Maryland Symphony and National Philharmonic, all these groups around uh employing musicians but no f kind of branded brass ensemble like if there was a brass ensemble happening it was just like you said a group of players that just got together so milton stevens and i in 1993 uh decided we would get together a group uh and and just play and and we we called it the washington symphonic brass we actually initially called it the washington brass but then somebody had that name trademarked and so that was fine. So we got a letter from their lawyer soon after our first concert and <laughs> decided we would change it to the Washington Symphonic Brass, which was more descriptive anyway. And, uh, you know, we just played in places that we wanted to play. And pretty soon people noticed and then they they noticed how the, the quality was good. And so pretty soon they were asking for the Washington Symphonic Brass. They weren't just asking for brass. They were asking for Washington Symphonic Brass or even players from Washington Symphonic Brass. For the, we had uh, the full group was 13 brass and three percussion. And then sometimes they would ask for a quintet or a dectet from that. But 
the entire time I would make sure that the arrangements were high quality and we weren't just reading some stock crap. And back then there was a lot fewer things to choose from. I mean, now you have a lot of arrangements out there readily accessible, but back then it was really hard to, you know, you had some of the Philip Jones things that were very good and, and, and other things, but it was really hard to get all the good stuff. So, so I would tailor make the arrangements for everything. And we would get asked to play with these choirs, uh, really amazing choirs in the DC area, uh, at, at, you know, professional level choirs that did these huge concerts at the Kennedy Center and at, and, and, you know, big halls. And so we would get asked to accompany them. And I would make arrangements and, and we would, you know, so we kind of branded ourselves as not only good concert, great concertizing group, but uh, also something that these other groups could utilize in a way that helped them out as well. And it, from what I, from what I gathered in the book, it was once people heard what brass is capable of, that it just opened, opened up a lot of eyes to something that they didn't know. Like they probably have seen brass in an orchestra setting but to hear it and something more substantive than like a brass quintet is wow i never knew this existed and i want more of this exactly and and one of our uh really cool recordings was called nielsen on brass where i transcribed the entire symphony number three by carl nielsen for organ and brass and uh douglas major played the organ part and it was really a huge project that I didn't even actually know was going to work when I started it. But, uh, you know, when we we did that live and then we did the recording and when people listen to that, we go, wow, that's I didn't think that would be possible. But it but it was. And I did a lot of stuff like that where we did a lot of stuff like that where we're like, we're going to try this. And and we did the one of my favorite recordings is our arrangement of Appalachian Spring. And uh, I think I mean, I, I don't think you miss a whole lot. From the other versions, so uh, we did arrangement of uh, the Shostakovich Eighth String Quartet called it's a chamber Shostakovich Chamber Symphony. That's some of the most heroic horn playing by Marty Hackelman I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and we we just had some really great personalities and voices in that group for so long, and we we kind of capitalized on that. And our audiences saw that, and they would come to hear not only. The Washington Symphony of Brass, but the people. I think well, one of the things you have to realize is if you're 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 out there marketing a group, that it's not just interchangeable players. I mean, there there are certain players that you want to plug in that make your group great, and then audiences notice that. And I think the problem with orchestras these days is they just think, well, you know, we can get anybody to play in our orchestra and it'll just be good, and that's true. But it won't be a great connection to your audience unless you realize that those musical personalities are connecting with your audience in a way that's intangible. And you have to take care of your musical personalities. Otherwise, you're just a machine. Yes. Uh, what is the vibe like in the Washington Symphonic Brass as far as not just, of course, the playing is great, but what is it like with the personalities meshing together? We're a big, huge, dysfunctional family. It's great. Okay. You know, we, as are all families, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, so so Milt has been gone for a while. Milt passed away uh, about twelve years ago, I think, uh, suddenly in a heart attack. But when, when so he and I started the group together, and 
you know, he would get up there and he would, you know, want one thing and then Marty would ask for something else and I'd ask for something else and then Chuck Casey would say, well, no, I want this. And, and, and we would all kind of fight about it in, in rehearsal. And, and that was the cool thing about it is that it wasn't just one person saying this is the way it is. Um, we were all kind of hammering it out and, and, and making it ours. And then when we got to the performance, it, you know, it happened. Like we were all doing what we, we, we all got what we needed out of it. And we all said what we needed to say in the music and the audiences saw that. So yeah, there were some <laughs> rehearsals were a struggle because you had some very strong personalities in there, myself included. I'm sure I was a pain in the ass to work with from Milt's standpoint, but, but I think he appreciated what we brought to the table and it wasn't. Uh, just a, a a dictatorship, and he didn't. He wasn't interested in that. And then, so since he's been passed, he's passed on. We've had uh, mainly Scott Wood conducting us, but also uh, Douglas uh, uh, Doug Majors. I'm sorry, not Majors. Uh, you'll have to edit this out because I forgot his name. Uh, former conductor of the uh, Fairfax Choral Society. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. And he fine musicians, and and actually having a choral conductor. Uh, conduct us really changed your perspective. Oh, yes, I'm sure. Well, you talk a lot about this in two separate sections of the book. You have the chapter titled Family, which is more along the lines of what, specifically what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you get stuck, for lack of a better term, with people that, well, you know, we, we, both, we both play our instruments, and I've heard stories about people who just don't like each other. I mean, they, they legitimately don't like each other. But when they get on stage, either in a rehearsal or a performance, they find a way to make it work. Because I guess they just have that common goal uh, of, of making great music. And then, they, and then the concert's over and they just don't look at each other and <laughs> go do their own thing. And that's well, just... And go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, there's famous stories about people... You know, in the trombone section of the Chicago Symphony, not speaking to each other for 20 years. And if you're doing that, and I'm sure that they did what they needed to do, but I'm if I find myself in a situation like that, I try to find a way to at least enjoy being next to them um, because you have to sit next to them, right? And so you have to not only sit next to them and make music, but if if you're not speaking to each other, I mean, how miserable an existence must that be? Um, anyway. My apologies to Doug Mears, who was the conductor of the Fairfax Choral Society, very fine musician, studied organ at Eastman, and then uh, conducted chorals, choruses for years and years and years. And when he conducts us, like I said, he doesn't care about how, how hard it is to play a brass instrument. He just wants the music. And so that's always refreshing. So we are uh, we're going to play Easter this uh Saturday night and Sunday at uh, the National Cathedral. And then July 4th, we've got the full group uh, under Scott Wood uh, at, you know, doing the Independence Day concert. And that's always how, special. How many, like, full concerts per year, per year do you do? We used to do a lot more. We used to do nine. And we're down to two or three now because uh, people have, since COVID, it's been really hard. The hall, if, believe it or not, the halls have gotten really expensive. Just to rent a hall is is ridiculous. So, it's it's really been tough to to present ourselves these days, and uh, so we're down. But we're working on it. It's actually our thirtieth anniversary uh, in September, and so we're working on a big concert to try to promote 
our 30th anniversary because we started in 1993. Well, congratulations. But and I want to I want to branch off a little bit about what we were just talking about how you have this family sometimes, well, probably more often than not it's it's got its own dysfunctions. But you brought up something the chapter is titled The Only Gig You Own Is The Gig You Own. And I thought this was one of the probably among the highlights of the book for me personally, because it really hit home for me. And I think if I understand it correctly, the essence of the chapter is, uh, it, I think it had to do with being more, more or less an outsider, looking, looking into a family, like a professional, or like a full-time orchestra. And sometimes you're subbing for one concert or maybe, maybe an entire year. But I think the essence of it that I took away was just know your place and don't overstay your welcome. Right. And, and that sounds kind of demeaning, know your place, but it, it really is uh, beneficial to you to realize that even if you're on a one year or even several one years, you're still not a tenured member of that dysfunctional family. And there's pluses and minuses to that. But just knowing that piece of information and kind of having it in your thoughts is, is I think, really beneficial to you in the long run of your career. Uh, so I talk a lot about in this chapter, the only gig you own is the gig you own about various people that have forgotten that and the follies they have, uh, they've experienced by, you know, going in and asking and demanding and whatever things that, that as a regular member you would be entitled to, but then, then they, they realize really fast that they're not regular members. So, it's okay because if you're not a regular member, you actually get to go off and do other things that regular members don't get to do a lot of the time. And so there are certain advantages to being a guest. And I actually enjoy it because uh, no, for the most part, people don't get tired of me uh, and, and they're always happy to see me. And so when I was, I, I have been regular members of other institutions, uh, Baltimore Symphony, uh, one of them. And, and what you realize is that, oh, this is like the rest of my life, like sitting next to this person or these group of people. And that can be fine, but um, it's it's so much more uh, interesting to, to sit next to one group of people one week and then a completely different group of people the next week and, and, and go around and, and, you know, you have a bigger group of friends, first of all, and, and certainly colleagues. And so, yes, this is, it was kind of a warning chapter, but also I tried to be optimistic in the book and say, you know, this is a good thing to, to, to the only gig you own is the gig you own. If you don't own these gigs, that's cool. You're going to get to play a lot more gigs that you don't own that you can, you know, have musical experiences with and personal connections and all that stuff that, that the regular members of even the New York Philharmonic or the Boston Symphony don't get to experience. And so... It's 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 a good thing in my in my book, and uh, I think in my book my book, and and I think you should celebrate it rather than bemoan the fact that you're not a regular member. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And and I think that you come from the perspective of <clears throat> someone who's spent his entire adult life with this mindset. Other people would say, I I can't imagine life as a freelancer. Give me the steady job, and give me I'll, I'll take the dysfunction every day of the week, twice on Sunday, as long as I have some regularity in my life. I don't, I can't imagine doing that. So no, it's, I think it, it's all it's, just a personal preference type of thing. Correct. And, and, yeah. and for me, when I finally got my 52 week job, I really didn't enjoy it. Exactly. I, I, 
Yes, you did like, say that. It was almost like, wow, this is so. So my music's gonna be in order every day, and all I have to do is just come play these notes, and that's all. In fact, that's all they wanted you to do. They didn't right. want you to really get out and. It, it was. It was just kind of. It. It to, to me, it was like, wow, this is this is all. This is all there is. So, so I kind of really wanted to continue my freelancing life, and then I realized I, I kind of couldn't because I was busy doing my other job, right? And, and it became clear to me that I really needed to just sit there and play second trumpet in the Baltimore Symphony. And I, to, to me, that was if I was still doing that, I wouldn't be happy. I, I so, hear that, and, and I've okay. heard, and the, I, and the person that's doing it now is doing a great job and is probably very happy. I hope. Yeah. If so, they're not, they should change it. If you're, I guess one of my messages to you is if you're in an orchestra or in any situation and you're hating your life, change it. Be don't a rainmaker. Yeah. Life. Yeah. You, you don't, don't think that this is all there is. Uh, right. Phil just created a brass ensemble. He's a rainmaker. I, I, it's a perfect, perfect, uh, perfect little bow on that conversation. Now I want to, change direction slightly we're still in the book but i just want to touch on a couple of things that you wrote and you gave some really good advice on auditions and i was wondering if we could just focus on that just a little bit and you said something about mental choreography uh the the chapter is titled uh what is it where is it interviews auditions and performances oh my and you talk about mental choreography could you just give a couple of highlights from that chapter for us sure so I, I i i kind of draw the parallel between auditions and interviews so that if you're not a musician you can kind of apply this to your life but uh you know auditions people try to go in and they go okay today's the day i'm gonna i'm gonna play the best i've ever played which is stupid because you're not gonna go into an audition and play the best you've ever played in your life you're not gonna play better than you've ever played it's not a realistic goal so the first thing is you just have to go show them how you do play. Be your, and so in an interview, don't show them a better person than you. Just show them you. And so musically, you just have to go, okay, this is who I am. And that can be comforting. And the next thing is uh, the choreography that you mentioned. Usually uh, you get five or six excerpts in a round, and they give you the sheet, and they put you in a room for a half an hour or more. And... A lot of people just blow their brains out that entire half an hour and they go on stage and they play tired and they leave and they wonder why they didn't get anywhere. So what I do, and, and this has worked out really well for me and my students, is I, I go in and I, I, I start each excerpt. I start the first piece. I'll start the solo and I'll play four bars of it. And then mentally, I'll play through the rest of it. I'll finger through it. I'll wind pattern through it. And I'll, I'll, I'll consciously say to myself... That went really well. That went great. That, that That's how I wanted it to sound. And then I'll turn the page and pick up whatever next horn I have. Let's say the next one is Academic Festival Overture, and I have to play that on a rotary valve trumpet. I'll pick that up, and then I won't play a bunch of warm-up notes on it because in the, in the round you're not going to, right? And I'll play it for four bars and then mentally play the rest of it, and it will have gone really well. I put that down and I'll pick up the B-flat trumpet and play the Shostakovich piano concerto. Same thing, four bars or maybe six bars. Then mentally go through it, play it really well in my mind. I'll go through the whole list doing that. I'll put, put it away. I'll get a drink of water, close my eyes for a couple of minutes and do it 
all over again. And I keep doing that for a half an hour. By the time I go on stage and do it, I've played through that list really well in the exact order five or six times. So I'm just doing it again. I mean, okay. And it's important here mentally to put yourself on stage. You're not in some crappy practice room uh, with with five trumpet players around you. And this is the hard part <laughs> because a lot of times they'll put you in a room where it sounds like the person is playing in your lap. You know, it's so loud in these things. And, and they're all playing the Brandenburg or whatever stupid thing they're playing. And you're trying to tune that out. So it's a mental exercise in being in your own world. And if you can block that out and go through the, 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 the list five or six times, by the time you get on that quiet stage, it'll be like just, it'll be easy. So you just put yourself, you've literally done the whole choreography and the whole thing five or six times. It's It's like just preparing your body and your mind for that event. Mm -hmm. And and I, I'm not an expert on performance psychology by any stretch, but I have heard that the mind cannot differentiate between reality and like a really thorough visualization. So if you do what you're describing in your minds, in your according to your mind, you've just done it perfectly. And so, yeah, so it just gives you an advantage. And if you, again, if you can tune out all that nonsense from, all the meathead trumpet players getting on stage. You're not even going to be nervous. So there you go. Great, great stuff. What is a finisher, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> well, because you are a finisher. Once, <laughs> you are a finisher. Once you start yes, something, you will not stop until you've done it, you, until you finished it. Right. And let me clarify for the audience that I retitled that, that chapter, uh, finish what you start. Because I've been told I can't call it be a finisher. So uh, finish what you start. That means if you start something, whether it's a a book or a piece of music or an you know arrangement or you know building a trumpet or whatever you're gonna do, at least finish it. Even if that piece is not very good or that book's not very good or you're gonna not you know necessarily put it out there. Uh, finishing it's important because then you go to the next thing and you finish that. And pretty soon you are going to have a body of work that you're going to use some of, or maybe even all of. Uh, during COVID, I, I did this thing, this uh, lyrical orchestral etudes, um, and, and basically took all my favorite lyrical excerpts and made them into etudes. And I, you know, because everybody's going crazy during COVID. So everybody had a project during COVID, right? I mean, literally everybody had a project during COVID. I decided to turn it into a marketable book. Right. And, and there were two or three things I did like that. I, I'm always putting stuff out there. And if nobody buys it, I don't really care. But if I, I want to have it available and what I want to do is have, you know, wake up one morning or several mornings and look at the body of work that I've had over my lifetime or over my recent past and say, yeah, I've, I've done something, you know, whether it's I just happen to have this here, whether it's this thing, classic rock for brass, which is one of our. CDs of Washington Symphony Brass that I one of my favorite CDs um, that that turned out that turned out great because and we just did it because we wanted to play some really cool rock stuff for Symphonic Brass and then we decided to record it. Um, there's a bunch of things around here like that that I that I started. Oh, this piece. Okay, so I just I just started a group called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which is tuba, tuba, viola. Uh, Tuba, viola, trumpet, and violin. And David Sampson wrote us a piece, 
and we just recorded it and videoed it and it's going to come out soon. I'm in the middle of editing that. I'm always doing something like that. So I'm going to get that all the way to the finishing point. I'm going to get it out there. It's going to be a video on YouTube. Uh, it's it, And hopefully it will inspire other people to have unusual combinations. But I'm always doing something like that. and But I'm always getting it to a finished point. I'm not just sitting in on my desk going, yeah, I'll finish that later. And so that's that's the, what that chapter is about, is finish what you start. F whatever you start, even if you don't feel like it's going to be marketable in the end, finish it, and then you can use it for something else. Sure. You never know what, what will happen, what uh, doors it'll open. If you, I, I've, I've always, not always, but I have learned that there is no wasted work. Even if it seems like completely wasted, years later, I'll draw on something, some crazy job that I did when I was 25 years old. I'm 45 now and I'm drawing on the experience that I had doing some silly job. Uh, that that has happened more times than I can count. And so even you just, if the job yeah. is a disaster, you mm -hmm. at least learn not what not to do. Exactly. And I'm I'm not talking about musical jobs. I'm talking about chucking drywall out of houses into a truck. <laughs> I used to be a moving man for a guy named for a, for a company named All American Moving Company, and <laughs> I learned a lot from that. <laughs> so that that brings you another thing is that is that uh, go out there and fail. Um, it, it, your failures are the way you figure out what works. And so I I talk about bringing your failures back to your workspace and putting them up on your wall with pride and going, okay, what did I learn from this? And and then moving on from there. And a lot of people are afraid of failing. So I'm encouraging people to go out and fail because it, 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 no, nobody, you know, goes out and wins the first audition. And Chris Martin didn't go and just win the New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Symphony. He failed a certain amount of times. I think it was 22 times, he told me, uh, before he got the Philadelphia Orchestra job. And then he figured it out. But, you know, it, which 22 is a pretty low number, I think. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people have a lot more. Uh, failures, but that's okay because it only takes one audition to win, and then you're, you know, if you want that, <laughs> yeah, if that's your thing, if that's what you want. Then, then, then it only takes one, and then you get tenure, and then you're there for life if you want it. All right. Well, the book is "Making Rain and Other Adventures on the Trumpet." Uh, how how could we find this book if we want to? What's the best way to find right. it? So. Uh, my website, uh, pasmusic.com, uh, or uh, Apple Books. I'm working on doing a, a well, you're going to talk to me about how to do a, one of those. Uh, audiobook? Uh, audiobooks, because I really feel like, you, you say that it, it's written like I'm talking to people, and, and it really is, and I would love to actually read this and have it out there for people to listen to it in the car. Totally, absolutely. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk about that because it's uh, yeah pasmusic.com uh, or you can just Google Phil Snedeker my website philsnedeker.com and then it'll take you on the first page it has a little link to the book. All right, well Jeff Kernow wrote it uh, read it in a day and a half. It took me longer than that. It took me probably I don't know maybe a week and a half. But again, it's uh it's just I don't want to say it's an easy read because that sounds like it's uh not doesn't have any substance. It's got a lot of substance. But it's very uh, easy to take in. It's written in a very personable style, and uh, I, I, the 
the praise that you have earned on social media and, and elsewhere is merited. Uh, so my congratulations to you for a, a wonderful contribution to our craft and uh, really appreciate you taking some time to be on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all your work you do for the uh, music community with this podcast. It's great. And you're making some rain yourself, man. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll be in your earballs soon. Music